Well, please take your copy of God's Word this morning, and the words to which I would call your attention come to us from Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 4, and we'll be looking at just a couple of verses, verses 2 to 3 as our sermon text, um, but I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. So let's hear now the word of the Lord from 1 Thessalonians Chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly uh, mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we read your word as an act of worship, remembering as a body of Christ gathered together that you've given this word as a revelation of yourself, your glory, your grace, your kindness, your love, and also to preserve your people. And so we look to it now, Father, as a means of grace, asking that you would cause it to be accompanied by your Holy Spirit. Um, Snatch sinners, Father, out of the flames of hell, even now. Turn our faces to the Lord Jesus Christ in comfort and in joy. We ask in his name and for his sake. Amen. Well, Uh, The reason we're looking at this text and thinking about this theme this morning of Thanksgiving is obvious to all of you. In just a few days, you're going to gather, Lord willing, maybe as an act of rebellion, uh, with your families around tables, and you're going to eat turkey and ham, and you're going to take naps and watch the Detroit Lions lose another football game. I assume they're playing this week. Uh, They normally do, the Cowboys. Um, you're going to gather around your tables, you're going to celebrate all the good things that the Lord has done for you. Uh, Some of you probably already have been um, exchanging recipes, maybe looking on Pinterest for how to decorate your table and all those really, really important things. And it's right to celebrate Thanksgiving, isn't it? Uh, Many, many years ago, Some of our forefathers came over here and they were such men that they had such principles that they were willing to give their lives for certain things. They were brave men, courageous men. They believed strongly that there were certain purposes for which one's life was not too high a price to pay. And we give thanks to God for raising up men like that. And we ask God to continue raising up 
men like that. The Apostle Paul was a man like that. For him, nothing was more important than the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Getting that message to as many people as possible. It was more important to him than his popularity. It was more important than his physical well-being. It was more important than his life. So it should be no surprise to us that we find him a thankful man. Maybe it seems a bit of an irony. But why why was the Apostle Paul so thankful? And what can you and I learn from his habit of thanks? It's what we're considering from the text this morning. And just one simple thing that I think you ought to take away from this passage is that thankfulness for salvation should be an ordinary part of your life. We're going to look this morning at Paul's thanksgiving that he talks about in verses 2 and 3 and considering just a few points that Paul's thanksgiving was for salvation, that his thanksgiving was corporate, that his thanksgiving was continual, and that his thanksgiving was to God. His thanksgiving was for salvation, it was corporate, it was continual, and it was to God. First of all then, notice that Paul's thanksgiving was for salvation. And this sort of comes at the end of this text. Verses 1 through 7 are one long sentence. They're broken up differently in the English, but it's one long sentence. And Paul talking about the, the reason for his giving of thanks, and it all boils down to this. I thank God all the time that he saved you. For, for you and me, we often identify with prayers of thanksgiving for provision. Lord, thank you for giving me a job. Thank you for uh, providing for my family. Uh, thank you for protecting us. And we thank God for these kinds of things, and you should. We, we look to the hills for our help, and when we receive that help, we give thanks. And you should. The Lord Jesus Christ himself lifted up his hands, right? And he took bread and he broke the bread. And after giving thanks, he distributed the bread and the fish to 4,000 people and to 5,000 people. Let me ask you this question, though. When was the last time that you gave thanks for your salvation? When is the last time that in concerted prayer you thanked God at length for saving you, for snatching you out of the flames of hell? When did you do that the last time? If you can't remember, it's been too long. What are some reasons that Christians might not do this as a regular habit? Well, maybe... maybe you think that you deserved it. Maybe, maybe you think, well, of course God would want somebody like me in his kingdom. I mean, look how cleanly dressed I am. I'm so polite. Um, 
I have good friends. I am someone that has a lot of persuasion. Of course the Lord would want me in the kingdom. It's not surprising that the Lord would redeem somebody as special as I am. My parents told me I'm so special and unique. Perhaps you haven't reflected recently on your own sinfulness. That every moment your heart is ready to run from Christ. That every moment you're ready to treasure other things more than you treasure the Lord Jesus Christ. And we find ourselves, it's easy to find ourselves in a condition of life, even as sincere believers where our heart is growing stony again, that we're not meditating, concentrating on the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ in saving us. Remember that Paul said to Timothy, he said, this is a faithful saying, probably something that was recited corporately in the church, I am the chief of sinners. When is the last time that you gave thanks for your own salvation? When is the last time that you thanked him for sending someone to you to teach the gospel to you? He didn't owe you that. That he gave you ears to hear it. That the Spirit of Christ drew you, listen, not when you were having a particularly holy day, but when you were rebelling against God with all your might, He drew you to Himself. That deserves thanks. He rescued you. But Paul doesn't talk here about giving thanks for his own salvation, does he? Although we know he did. Here, Paul is giving thanks for the salvation of other people. When is the last time that you gave thanks for someone else's salvation? Do you know why Paul gave thanks for the salvation of someone else? I'm going to suggest to you a couple reasons why Paul was thanking God for other people's salvation. I think, one, because first... He prayed for their salvation. Paul gave thanks for the salvation of other people because he prayed for their salvation. Remember in Romans chapter 10, that whole consideration of Paul is thinking of his own people and wanting, desiring the salvation of his own people. He says, their brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. We get this picture of the apostle that he's always on his knees, continually giving thanks. Why? Because he's continually asking the Lord to save people. He recognized that the success of the word depended on the blessing of God Almighty. Another reason he's continually giving thanks for the salvation of others is that he expended energy in their evangelism. Their salvation was the fruit of Paul's labor. We get the picture of the, of the apostle going into these cities and proclaiming the gospel, giving of himself, 
And when there is fruit born, he thanks the Lord for it. So I think the challenge for us as we look at a passage like this is, is how, how frequently, how earnestly am I in prayer thanking the Lord for my salvation and for the salvation of other people? And if I'm not doing that, why? Secondly, we see that Paul's thanks was corporate. What are you talking about, preacher? Look at the passage again. Who, who does Paul say is giving thanks here? He, he doesn't say, I give thanks. Does he? he? He says, we give thanks. Obviously, in the passage, he's talking about himself and Silas or Silvanus and Timothy, that together they're giving thanks for the salvation of these people. He says, we give thanks. It's something that Paul was showing his disciples how to do, how to pray to the Lord. He's teaching them, give thanks for the salvation of other people. He describes the fact that he gave thanks with other people for other people. And so from this, we learn that it is appropriate for the church, listen, for the church to devote time to corporate prayer for the salvation of other people. We learn this from the Lord's Prayer, don't we? Jesus didn't teach you to pray, as Danny just said. We don't say, my Father, do we? What do we say? Our Father. So the confession reminds us of the shorter catechism that it is appropriate for us to pray, how? With and for others. This is what the scriptures reveal. The church, listen, the church's gospel ministry begins and ends with prayer. We should be gathering regularly to pray for the success of the gospel, to ask for gospel laborers, to give thanks for those whom God has saved, and to ask that more might be. This is central to us. Some of you are students of history. Maybe you're students of church history. Maybe you're students of American church history. And you go back to the late 1700s and you, you, you find men like Jonathan Edwards and Samuel Davies who could preach your socks off, right? And you find in that period of time, sometimes great revival took place. Incredible revival. And you know that very often, if you're a student of history, you'll know this, those revivals weren't under big white tents in the Walmart parking lot. They didn't have Walmarts back then. You might not have known that. They came out of prayer meetings. One man, two men, ten men, thirty men, black, white, slave, free, gathered, together, praying, praying, a hundred 200, 1,000 men, all gathering in prayer. 
There's a story, I'm not sure if it's true or not, about Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher. And the story goes that five college students came to the church one morning to hear uh, Mr. Spurgeon preach. Because, again, he could preach your socks off. And they find there, uh, this man greets him at the door and he says, can I show you around the church? And they say, sure, we love to see the church. And, and Mr. Spurgeon takes him around and he says, I want to show you the boiler room. This is our, the pride of the church. And so the college students, of course, they're kind of scratching their head. You know, nobody wants to see the boiler room. And he, sa- oh, he says, come, come down, let me show you the boiler room. And, and so they go down and, and he opens the door to the boiler room and the and the, these young college students, they look in to see the boiler room and what do they find there? But they find the church gathered in prayer prior to the service. And Spurgeon was teaching them that the heat and light of the church came not just from the preaching, it came from the people praying for the success of the gospel. We ought to be gathering corporately if we want to see Macomb and Summit changed and Magnolia changed for the gospel. It begins and ends with prayer. Paul's thanks was corporate. Thirdly, Paul's thanks was continual. Look again with me at the text. This comes out in such force that you can't miss it. We give thanks to God always for all of you. Paul doesn't say except Joe, me and him had a run in. right? All of you, we give thanks for all of you. Constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Paul's thanks was continual. It wasn't one time a year when he was seated around the table with his family. He's always, always, always giving thanks for the salvation of the church. And in some sense, what he's showing us here is that he practices what he preaches. So... In just a few chapters, when we get to chapter 5, there's going to be a a verse that sometimes we struggle with in chapter 5, verses 17 or 16 to 18. Remember that that passage where Paul said, rejoice always. And that's one of those we all like to think is directed to the person sitting next to us. Where he he says, pray without ceasing. Where he says, giving thanks in every circumstance. So when Paul is giving thanks continually here at the opening of this epistle, he's only practicing what he preaches. He's not a hypocrite. Paul is giving thanks continually for the salvation of other people. Listen, because their salvation cost him something. When When Paul came to Thessalonica, he had been through some other cities. Philippi, where he's beaten and left for dead. In fact, if you look at verse chapter 2, verse 2, he says, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So he's beaten, abused, left for dead in Philippi, comes to Thessalonica, preaches the gospel 
over the course of a few weeks probably, and then they run him out on a rail. There were no televangelists in this day. Because the gospel costs something. And so for Paul, you know, just as, just as a farmer, we just sang, come ye thankful people, come, thinking of bringing the crop in. We're going to weather the winter. And that farmer, you can see him, can't you, lifting his hands to heaven, giving thanks to God for the produce of the land and seeing those hands are scarred and callous from the work that he's done. So listen, when Paul kneels down, he is kneeling on knees that are bruised and beaten because he had proclaimed peace and reconciliation to a dying people. He recognizes God's providence in the events of his life. He could have preached the gospel. Everybody listened. Everybody came to faith. They treat him with kindness. They shower him with blessings and with encouragement. But instead, it was God's good ordination that he would preach it in affliction. And Paul gives thanks. He recognized that God's purpose was the salvation of others and Paul's sanctification. And you will testify that we are rarely sanctified apart from affliction. A child who's doted on and given everything he wants is rarely a thankful child. Why? Because he thinks he deserves everything he gets. Except the bad stuff, of course. Perhaps we grow thankless for others' salvation because we grow spoiled under God's provision. Finally, Paul's thanks was to God. Who does Paul thank for the salvation and the sanctification of the Thessalonian people? He, he thanks God. And those of us who are Reformed and Presbyterian and really proud of it, we think of the sovereignty of God and we think of grand passages like Romans chapter 9 Grand passages like Ephesians chapter 1, in love, we are predestined. But I want you to see that God's electing grace is also beautifully and brilliantly portrayed in simple phrases in Scripture like this. We thank God. If God was not the cause of the Thessalonian salvation, why would they thank Him for it? Paul shows then by his prayer that God is the cause. The reason you're saved is because God acted in your life first. He took the initiative. He stepped before you while you were running away. I have, I've never ever heard anyone pray... Thank you, God, that Tommy 
finally got turned into the way of salvation. Thank you that he finally got smart. Some have said that everyone believes in the sovereignty of God when it comes to prayer. We all thank God. As you give thanks to God for salvation, you need a big view of God's sovereignty. There's a story shared in a book in which a man says that his brother was on a motorcycle coming around a curve. And as he was coming around the curve, a car was backing out of a driveway. And his brother hit the bumper of the car, was thrown from the motorcycle, and died. And he says there, I was comforted in knowing that God was just as surprised by that event as I was. Brothers, sisters, that's not comfort. That's blasphemy. I've seen a picture, a meme, circulating on Facebook where Jesus is seated across from Satan and between them there's a chess table. Satan makes a move, Jesus makes a move. Satan makes a move, Jesus makes a move. That's blasphemy. Satan is a created being. He has no power that he hasn't derived from God. He is an instrument only. God has ultimate authority so that in the Psalms, the psalmist write, might write, our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Everything, whatsoever He wills, comes to pass. So that Jesus might say to you that not even a hair can fall from your head, Brian McCullough, apart from the will of of my heavenly father. You need a big view of salvation and God's sovereignty in it or you won't be thankful. If you are in the kingdom, listen, if you are in the kingdom, it is because he, in his sovereignty, sent you a messenger and he gave you ears to hear I want to speak just for a moment to our covenant children. There are, around the world, millions of children whose mommy and daddy never teach them Christ. There are many more children whose mommy and daddy teach them to hate all things religious. But in His kindness to you, He has given you a mother and a father who teach you the gospel. Who to the very best of their ability model what it means to love and worship Christ. And I challenge you to give God thanks for this mercy. Being mindful of all of those children who will never have an opportunity to hear and will be condemned. If you are in the kingdom, it is because God sent you a messenger and He has given you ears to hear. If you are in Christ, 
You are so because it pleased Him. Thank Him. If your labors have brought others into the kingdom, they did so because it pleased God. Therefore, thank Him. Jesus teaches us to ask God for laborers. Paul teaches us to give thanks when those labors bear fruit. Jesus gave thanks when he broke the bread and distributed the cup, symbolizing his body and blood. Paul teaches us to give thanks when the broken and the bloody body of Christ is exalted in the salvation of others. Brothers and sisters, remember that a church which gives thanks for the harvest will be one that first prayed together for the harvest. Amen. Our Lord and our God, your word is perfect. And as we sit under it, listening to what you have to teach us in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are we're humbled. Our salvation is the thing which, for which we ought to be thankful all the days of our lives. And we grow slothful. We don't think about what an infinite mercy it is that you accepted the merit of the Lord Jesus Christ in our behalf, you, you weren't obligated to do that. That you sent your son, your only son, whom you love, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that he willingly took to himself our nature to suffer, to redeem us. We think about this very moment, how overcome we can be with lustful, uh, grievous hateful thoughts. And yet you're always ready to receive a repenting sinner in Christ. So we give you thanks. And this week, Father, as we gather around our tables to give you thanks for your faithful provision, and you are so faithful to a faithless people. Help us also to be thankful for our salvation and to pray for the salvation of other people. We ask in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.